Welcome, and thank you for tuning in to Black Women Amplified, the podcast. Your host, Monica Wisdom Tyson, brings you downloadable conversations that matter to women around the globe. We discuss all things black girl magic, amplify our voices, and transform our challenges into triumphs. Monica calls on her league of extraordinary women to push our boundaries, share their expertise, and stories of personal transformation. Welcome your host of Black Women Amplified, Monica Wisdom Tyson. Hello, Black Women Amplified family. It is your girl, Monica Wisdom, and I am so excited that you're here with us today. We have a very special guest in the building, and I can't wait to tell you all about her. V. Cherie Williams honors the Black cultural experience as the pioneering publisher of Cuisine Noir magazine. Taking the helm 14 years ago, Cherie transformed the publication into a multimedia format that includes digital, print, and a podcast. Cherie's passion for Black cuisine fortified her commitment to the culture by creating and founding the Global Food and Drink Initiative, ensuring the magazine continues weaving the stories of Black chefs, tastemakers, winemakers, and travel influencers into the foundational tapestry of American food. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome our guest, Miss V. Cherie Williams, to the Black Women Amplified podcast. Hello, Cherie. How are you today? Thank you for joining us on the Black Women Amplified podcast. Thank you, Monica, for having me. I'm so excited to be here. I'm excited to you are a legend in this game, a pioneer. Oh, <laughs> oh you just made my day. You are the you flowers. Are, I mean, there's you, there's Susan Taylor, there's Oprah Winfrey. There are very few Black women who have made this level of impact for our culture, not only for our culture, but for the world. How does it feel looking back over all the things you've done while being a publisher of a magazine? You know, I just wanted to tell a story. You know, I go back to fifth grade with Miss Delaney and just writing short stories and not really realizing that's when those seeds were planted and just telling stories over the year. And then when I took this on in 2009, I was like, okay, yeah, food, chefs, okay. And then it's just really opened my eyes to who I am as a Black person, as a Black woman, as all of these things. And it has truly, truly been unexpected and totally amazing. So you started in 2009 with the magazine, the publication, not only just a publication, but pioneering with a digital and print publication which is a big deal (laughs) because even Oprah didn't go into digital until recently. Right. (laughs) So you did it before the big O. Wow. And that's my fellow Aquarian too. So I guess, you know, I always love to follow in her footsteps. So (laughs) what were some of the beginning conversations in 2007, 2008 before you actually birthed this project? Well, you know, I I always like to start 
with this because, you know, and, and giving some background to the magazine and starting with, I'm actually not the founder and the concept originally wasn't mine. And I say that because uh, I proudly say that I should say, because my work stands for itself, right? And so I want to acknowledge the owner, his name is uh, Chef Richard Pinnell, or the founder, I should say, excuse me, the founder, Chef Richard Pinnell, who's out of Sacramento, who really had this vision for Cuisine Noir back in 1998, really. Oh, wow. Chef down in Southern California and not seeing Black chefs amplified in uh, magazines like Food and Wine and Savour and all of those that you see now were trying to make up for that, right? Mm-hmm. And so he actually, we had worked on a separate project in 2005. And then he approached me about Cuisine Noir in 2007. And I said, oh, wow, this is a, you know, I was really looking to start my freelance writing career. And I said, this is really interested. And I was just like sold. And so at the time I was in grad school and I said, well, you know what? Online, this whole website and all this stuff is about to blow up because my master's is in communications. And so we were studying this sort of in school at this time. I said, you know what? This is all about to blow up this digital stuff. And so I said, let's launch it online and then see if you want to go into print because we knew print was way more expensive and all of that. And so October of 2007, we launched the first version of Cuisine Noir Digital. <laughs> and you should, I, I don't know if I have pictures of it. <laughs> Oh, Lord, <laughs> go back and look where we are now. And we were so proud. Mm-hmm. And this was the time when Rock Harper won Hell's Kitchen. Big Daddy, Aaron McCargo Jr. won Food Network Star. The Neelys were popping up on the scene on the Food Network. And so we were starting this these conversations around that time. We were looking at paying tribute to those the the Patrick Clarks of the world, the Leah Chase, all of those uh, amazing people. And then we also, because we were were here in wine country, we were looking at Black winemakers. So, you know, we actually came out with the first uh, Black list of Black winemakers around the world because we started having those conversations. And so the goal was always to amplify voices of Black chefs, share these stories and then what is really into vision for me now is change that narrative. And that's what's important of what we're doing. We're changing the narrative. Mm, that is beautiful because Black food, as I'll call it, has never been looked at as a cuisine. It's just something, it's always been in our grandmother's kitchens, but it's never been put on that global stage like French cuisine or Italian food or whatever the, you know, I'm not going to say British food because I'll leave that there. But it's just never been. But the skill, the flavors, the taste and the history is no less than France. So the publication really amplifies that. The idea that this is actually a cuisine. And how are you able to incorporate all of those ideas as you're developing over the years? Oh, wow. So there's a book by Dr. Diane. I always call her Dr. Diane Speedy because she's like a doctor to me, but she's a culinary historian, a Diane Speedy, and she's out of Florida and it's called At the, pa- At the Table of Power. And she talks about 
how we as Black people were in the kitchens cooking. That's, you know, when we were enslaved, that's what we did and and the pride that we had in that. But then when the table turned and we were sort of kicked out of the kitchen and it started taking on this prestige of what it is, these celebrity chefs and all of that, and then how Black chefs got reduced to caterers and all of this. And then this standard of French cuisine came into play, right? And that's what everybody goes by today is, are you French trained? Is it a Michelin star? All of that. And that's, I had to say it, but that's what a lot of Black chefs lived by as well as in their careers. And so now we are truly seeing the tables being turned to where it's like, no, this is the food that we cook. This is the food that I was raised on. This is what fed me, what got me through. This is who I am on a plate. And this is how I'm going to move forward. And so to see really where even the evolution of Black chefs of trying to have that that fame of I'm a Michelin star, I'm French trained, all of this to say, you know what? I'm trained in my mama's kitchen. (laughs) And that is the best kitchen of all to be trained in and, and go from there has really been wonderful. And I'll tell you this, Monica, when I started Cuisine Noir digitally, Mm -hmm. I would have people along the years say, well, don't you want to talk about this chef and open it up and do this? And I said, no, I want to tell the stories of black people and food, drink, and travel. That's where I want to be. And I'm so glad even to this day that I just, I stuck to my guns and I did not change at all. The history that you have archived in your publication is incredible. And that's the same mission I have with Black Women Amplified, this podcast, because we, your story should, your story should be in Vogue magazine. Thank you. Your story should be in Glamour magazine. You should be next to the great publishers in conversation. And so I was like, who's talking to these people? Well, I guess I'm going to have to do it. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. So it's important because everybody's story matters, no matter if you're from South Carolina, uh, St. Louis, Missouri, or Paris, France. It's important that all of those stories are told. And the way that you tell your stories in your magazine or your team tells the stories. It's a beautiful love story to the history. And it's beautiful because when I watched High on the Hog was the first time I connected our history to our food. Mm -hmm. When I watched it, it was during the same conversation that was going on that they're banning our stories in schools. I was like, what a great, great way to sneak in our history. Let's talk about a pot of greens or let's talk about rice. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. it was the first time I ever heard that rice came from the Africans. Yes. I was like, no, but what a way to share our history. Is that the undercurrent of the magazine? You know, it really is. And again, I, I look at where I started being new in 2009 to this type of journalism. And then as my activism started coming into play, And my eyes started widening over what is going on. And, you know, people approaching me at events like Cuisine Noir, what is that? Soul food, you know, just making silly remarks and and being totally ignorant toward, you know, one, our publication and two, just Black chefs and Black culinary in general. I think, Monica, over the years, it really has 
said, you know what? I'm going to tell these stories. And then like you, as I'm learning, right? I'm learning that we weren't even shared anything from the continent of Africa. And you learn how the continent produces so much cacao and chocolate, Mm -hmm. but it's taken from the continent and made into this luxury chocolate in France and Belgium. Yes. Chocolate starts in Africa. Mm Mm-hmm. And so just that whole missing narrative from Africa. So I would say it was, but now is more to the forefront of this is what we need to know as Black people, especially for our next generations, because we should not have to no longer ask, where are the Black chefs? We should no longer have to ask about the beautiful and the bountiness that comes from Africa that has that feeds the world. We shouldn't have to know who are Black winemakers. That question gets asked in 2021, 2022, and it's like, okay, really? You're serious, right? Really? You're surprised that there's a Black winemaker? (laughs) And so (laughs) I'm serious. And so, you know, we're out there for anyone who wants to know about this this information, and and we're going to get even more vocal with it. But, you know, the more I uncover, and so for instance, you know, in our current print issue, we talk about Vinci or Vinci out of Colombia and how it was a quote unquote sort of moonshine that was created by those that were enslaved and taken to Colombia on the coast there. And that how the Afro-Colombians brewed this and made this for over 400 years, but the Colombian government made it illegal for a variety of reasons. We won't go into that, which we know. Oh, money and power, right? And so even with Lissette and her family, bringing that back to the forefront and making sure that in 2021, the country just said it can be legally made again and sold, but it can only be done so in Afro-Colombian communities such as hers in 2021. And that story goes back to the Atlantic uh, slave trade. So this is important history. And you're like, what? Right. I'm sitting here like, what? Exactly. You know, it's important to get out the story of Kimberly Prince and her family that started Nashville Hot Chicken, because we know that there's some so many that have popped up today, even white owned that, you know, are doing sort of better than her in business. But they've taken her family's concept and have run with it. And, but we need to pay homage that it was her family out of Nashville, Tennessee in the thirties that started the Nashville hot, hot chicken, her family. And that in the world needs to know that. And and so many huge corporations have been developed around that idea. And she's, I've never heard of her until this very moment. Yep, absolutely. So, you know, I'm excited to be able to share these stories and, and make sure that they are now solidified in our history because they weren't told before and they have to be told in the right voice too because you know I have to admit certain writers may get stuff wrong and certain publications may still not share the full story if they're worried about tailoring stuff to their audience but I'll tell you one thing as someone says with Cuisine Noir we are blackity black black okay (laughs) and so we are going to tell it as we see it through our Black eyes. And that's where the power is because you don't have anybody's interpretation or perspective or biases connected to the story. 
it's just just us for us telling our stories. And that's the purest form of any conversation between a publication and their audience is you get to hear it from us. And so you have this huge archive of all of these stories and, and I know it's going to be hard to pick your favorites, but what are your, (laughs) what are your top three moments that have happened inside of the publication? One was getting a letter from the Smithsonian channel of including our 2014 cover with Chef Randall in the museum in DC, African-American museum in DC when, before it opened in 2016 and so that I, I will never forget the day. It was in November of 2015. And I remember at my desk and it was a low day, Monica. It was one of those days that you ask yourself, what am I doing and why am I doing it? It was one of those days that we have 50 million times over the course of our career as business owners and entrepreneurs, right? And to get that email was like, Oh my goodness. And then to go to the museum and see it play on the fourth floor in the video talking about African-American cooking was like, wow. Mm. So that is definitely one of my favorite. You know, each time we, I would say definitely over the last few, you know, our print issues have truly evolved. And I have copies of those just to show where we're at from the first one to where we are with this one. And I love, you know, it's funny because myself, the designer, and then the proofreader are really the only ones that ever see the issue before the rest of the world sees it, right? And so when the rest of my team who has sent in their articles, and then when they see it, that what they've contributed to, those are special moments every year that is just like, wow, you know, and and to just hear from them. So, you know, the release of a new print issue is always like, I can't wait for everyone to see it and then to get everyone's reaction. So that's definitely, you know, a high point going on. Mm -hmm. Let's see a third one, because I know there are some special ones, you know, say just collectively having people like you and others recognize our work, because I'll be honest with you, because I truly, I'm usually always am. Sometimes there still is this, you know, people know us, we're out there, but we still have more work to do. We're not the essence and the ebonies of the world because, of course, they've got 40, 50 years on us. And so sometimes it seems like people are peeking around the corner at who who's Cousine are and what are they? And we've got darn good quality work. But sometimes it's still we're still made to feel that, you know what, we still haven't made it. We're still not good enough on those levels. So I say that to say, again, when people like you and others come to interview me or talk about the magazine, those are high points for me that I always treasure and appreciate because, you know, those just say, you know what, those are points for me to keep moving. So those are definitely highlights in my career. And, and inside of Cuisine Noir, when we can share our story with amazing people like yourself. Let me tell you, the quality of the writing is highbrow, as they say. Thank it, you. it is like, for me, I always loved sitting down and reading a magazine. I have an attitude with the digital world. <laughs> <laughs> There's something about turning everything off, lighting a candle, getting my favorite beverage, and just sitting down and going through every page. And the magazines that I've always read were Vogue, uh, 
architectural digest just because anything in the arts I would read. And your magazine is equivalent to those magazines. The quality of writing is excellent. I remember my cousin, Greg, Dr. Shaw, who connected us was like, oh, you should go write for her. And I was like, I don't think I'm ready for that yet. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. You know, that's serious research that your people do. And it's not just fluff. It is like, it's hard news. The easiest way to say it. It's true journalism. It's not just, let's show a pretty picture and tell us, you know, let's tell us what the flavors are in the picture. It's like, no, you're going to know the history. You're going to know the chef. You're going to know the area, the region. You're going to know everything by the time you finish reading this article. And that's beautiful. You know, I'm I'm blessed to have an amazing team of writers all over the world. And and a lot of, and, and several are very seasoned journalists, retired journalists, currently just great writers. And and then I'm nurturing some new ones as well. And that's the beauty of this too that I didn't see in the beginning, right? Is being able to nurture the next generation of Black or people of color, writers of color, food writers, and making sure that they feel comfortable telling their stories through their voice. I always say, especially when I was working with a previous editor, you know, I can hear my writer's voice. I know this writer from this writer from that writer. So when I'm reading their stories, I'm hearing their voice as they're writing this. And so to me, I think that's very powerful as an an editor because you need to know why they said this, why this or whatever. You just know their style. And that's very important. And then being able to feel comfortable. One, you have to feel comfortable asking the questions and sometimes going there. We have lived experiences and professional experiences and being able to, I always say in that interview process, that's where you got to get it out. You got to get nosy because I'm going to tell you right now, I'm a nosy editor. (laughs) How does she get from here to here? Okay, this, you know, so I look at, make sure the thread is woven through the story so that is when it gets to you and other readers, you can follow it and you can be like, yes. And so that's what I expect from my writers teaching them, being descriptive, telling those stories. And I always say, and this is the most important part, it is they need to tell their story. And and for the most part, we're capturing it. So I want the quotes. I want to hear them in the story. I don't want to hear you. I want to hear them. And if I hear more of you than them, then I need you to go back. That's a level of care that is much appreciated on this end as a reader. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. So you said earlier that you started off as a freelance writer. So your background is in writing, not necessarily food. But are you a foodie? Oh, my goodness. (laughs) Yes, this magazine has turned me into a foodie (laughs) and a wino, okay? (laughs) Foodie and a wino. But, you know, so I always share this story, which is so hilarious from where I've come. So, you know, I grew up outside Chicago. And I did an internship because my background really is advertising marketing. That's where I studied undergrad and then grad. And so I did, I got an internship to come out to California my senior year in college. And we were at a luncheon at the Marriott for the founder, Paul Ryan at the time, for his what big guy in the advertising world. And Monica, they set a mixed green salad down in front of me. And I did not know what it was. I was used to iceberg. 
And so what is this radicchio? What, 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 what is this? And I didn't eat it. I didn't know what it was. Cause it looked, now, like, stuff from the, it looked like stuff from the front yard. <laughs> it, 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 it was just, it was, it was just lettuce and greens. I was not familiar with and I would say, but then obviously being in California and getting to the farm, really getting into the farm to table movement and just fresh California produce, right? Obviously that has changed. And the only iceberg you'll find is on my tacos now for the most part, right? <laughs> but, you know, as I got more exposed professionally with, you know, going out to corporate dinners and stuff, things changed, but then really take learning about cuisine noir or writing and creating and building Cuisine Noir, yes, turns me into a big foodie. And then, you know, I had wine here and there, but it was more cocktails. But definitely the more we started writing about and uh, winemakers and all of this, I have truly embraced the wine world to the point where I'm studying my certifications. I have some side gigs that I do where I go and I pour in stores just to learn about different wineries and stuff like that to keep myself going in the wine world. And so I, yes, so I love food. I love, and it makes me appreciate different types of foods too, right? You know, again, growing up Midwest, you know, I really can't say, even though I had classmates that were, you know, Indian, I can't really say I had Indian food growing up. I had Chinese food growing up, but I think that was mainly it. So food and maybe Mexican and, and Chinese. But now my world has opened to Indian and Burmese and was in a Thai food, you know, Vietnamese food. And really, I think what's important too is even if you don't like it, be respectful because that is somebody else's food, someone else's culture. And I think if anything from the magazine, it has really, truly taught me that. You don't have to like it, but be respectful. And people have to understand that a palate has to be developed. Just like mm -hmm. any muscle, you have to learn how to taste the different flavors. Yes. Because just your brain might not recognize it until you eat it more and more. And you're like, oh, what is that? And then somebody can tell you what that spice is. Because when I first started Indian food, I love it now. But when I first started eating, I was like, I don't like it. But the more I got into the flavors and the more I trained my palate, I could taste the different flavors that's in it. And then I could also see our connection as a culture. Right. When you go back to West End, I mean, all the way to Guyana, to Trinidad, to Jamaica, I mean, it's, it's tight right there between Indian and African cultures. Yes. One thing about your magazine that I love is that you do focus on the diaspora. Was that a decision you made early on or is it something that developed? It developed. I would say that came into play probably three to four years after the launch in 2009. And I want to say we were truly the pioneers of doing that, of really connecting all of us through food, drink and travel. And I just, again, just learning who I am and started to learn my roots. And, you know, and it, and it came about, too, as we were interviewing people of the curiosity brewing of, you know, someone saying, well, my Jamaican parents, my Ghanaian parents, my Colombian or whatever. And it sort of made me say, well, where am I from? You know what I mean? Where are my roots? You, we, you know, you hear the family stories and all that, right? But truly, truly, because we've lived our family as a, an African-American family, truly, truly, where are our roots? And so that was part of me saying, you know what? I'm loving the diversity that we're having in the issue. 
And then, you know, at the time, Chef Pierre Tim coming on the scene and he's Senegalese and and just everything started, you know, it's like, why not? Open we have to talk about who we are as black people around the world. And it has gone, it has launched, and I'm just I'm so thrilled. I just I love it. I I just I love it. (laughs) What are some of the full circle moments you've had while publishing this magazine? Wow. You know, I was going back to earlier comment. I had uh, when I was saying that of people trying to, I think I'm in a full circle moment now. And I say that because of a couple of things. When 2020 hit and all of a sudden everyone was like, oh my goodness, you know, unfortunately we had the murder of George Floyd. We had the murder of Breonna Taylor. Then we had that incident in New York with the bird watcher. You know, now all of a sudden everyone is buy Black, promote Black, do this, do this. You started seeing some shakeups in editorial rooms because one, they weren't hiring necessarily, didn't have people of color, especially Black people on their editorial teams talking about food. And a lot of the writers who said they had pitched publications in the past, now all of a sudden, you know, pitch that they wrote two years later, all of a sudden they're getting a call from an editor about it or something, you know? And so you're seeing all of this Black, 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 promote Black, Black, Black. And I was like, oh my God, what do we do? Because now people are going to start to really get into our territory. And we've been talking about these stories. (laughs) You know, I had that moment, right? Right. And then I had to calm down and say, you know what? We have been doing this for the past 11 years. I ain't doing nothing different than what I'm already doing because I have been here doing this. (laughs) So at that moment, it was like, for those who said, why don't you change your editorial focus and open it up to not just Black people? And on top of that, you know, Black chefs stepping up and saying, you know what, if I can't tell you that I'm Ghanaian, I'm Jamaican, I'm African-American from the South or whatever on my plate, then I don't want to do it, you know? And so the whole, this whole movement in the Black culinary of really reclaiming our history, our culture, and our food, all of this now for me, Monica, is a full circle moment to say, you know what? Wow. I saw that vision in 2009 and now everyone, and I stood my ground and now everyone is coming around. Uh, not everyone's coming around, I shouldn't say that, but now is is starting to say, you know what? No, we have not been telling these stories. And chefs are like, we're going to tell our own stories. And everyone is like, we're going to tell our own stories. So that was definitely full circle. And then, you know what? One time, one day earlier this year, I got a call out of the blue from a chef that I was working with when I was launching, relaunching the magazine in 2009. And You know, he said, I didn't see what you were doing at the time, but basically he said, I see it now. And I didn't because he was, you know, chasing the the white approvals in a sense, right? This is what it means to be a Black chef in a white kitchen. And I was like, nope, I want to tell Black stories, da, 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 da. And so for him to circle back around and and give me flowers on that too, it was like, wow. You know, so that really keeps you saying, wow, you are really making an impact. Sometimes you don't think it's a big one, but you're making an impact. And you are, and what you said that you set out to do, you're doing. And now people are taking notice to it. And, you know, when you're planting that seed and nurturing that seed, you don't see what it's going to blossom into or how it's going to feed other people. 
but we just have to stay true to our vision and our focus, not get distracted because it will come around because that wasn't given to you for no reason, because that wasn't even your, you were a freelance writer. So to enter into a world that was brand new to you, I mean, like you said, you started off with iceberg lettuce. (laughs) (laughs) And now you're visiting olive trees and plantation, you know, and discovering histories and worlds that, that that are now open up to you that you can share with other people. So as I'm listening to you tell, tell that story, it's really, I'm really trying to hold back tears because I feel like, oh, this makes me emotional. I feel like our people are finally seeing ourselves. Right. Yes. Yes. And it's a, and seeing ourselves in not the slave story, but our magnificence and the strength through the strength of the enslaved people. But we are finally seeing ourselves. And, no, and the recognition that we are enough. And you know what's beautiful, too, when you talk about di- diaspora and connecting the dots. I love having conversations with brothers and sisters over in Africa and Kenya or something. Mm-hmm. And you will be surprised. It'd be like, y'all do too? Yes. The, what is ingrained in our blood as Black people, I'm telling you. <laughs> Listen. <laughs> wrong okay when i sat up in a village in africa and i was eating chicken and rice i was like wait a minute y'all eat chicken and rice too (laughs) yes it is strong and and so you know we were taught division i remember in college i had you know i took a french class and my teacher was from the ivory coast and he felt that he had to be on me because of what he heard about Black people in America, that we were lazy, we don't do this and do that. And he's like, I want you to be the best. And I'm thinking to myself, I am in one of the best country schools in the country. And I got here on my own. What are you talking about? You know, but it was this perception that he had of us coming from Africa to Champaign-Urbana to teach. And it was like, wow, so there's always you know, been this division between us and them when it's like, no, get rid of that, you know, and that's the beauty. And so what we're seeing and believe it or not, you know, as people from the diaspora, there people, black people around the world are looking at us here in America and what we're doing, you know, leading certain movements, especially when Black Lives Matter movement was going on and how that empowered the the Black hair movement and how that empowered different countries, Brazil and different Black women over in those countries to wear their natural hair. And so that is very powerful. But also what I'm excited about, too, is what we're seeing going on in Africa and finally the covering that's being ripped apart by those on the continent and then also individuals who may have come here for education or work and then they're going back to Africa and they are really saying, you know what, it's time for this continent to thrive because we know of the beauty that's here, the resources, again, that feed the world that are here and it's time to change that narrative. So not only are we changing the narrative over here as Black people, it's being changed over in Africa too. And so I'm telling you, it's happening. It is happening. It was about a month ago when I saw an article and I believe it was Ghana because I'm always reading about Ghana. Mm-hmm. They are going to stop selling their chocolate to Belgium. Yes. Did, was it Ghana? 
Yes, yes. Yes, they're going to stop selling their chocolate to Belgium and produce it themselves. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Talk about an economy exploding. Because when you go to Belgium, I'm sure you've been, there are chocolate shops every step of the way. When you go to France, there are chocolate shops every step of the way. Where did that chocolate come from? Where did the chocolate come from? I never asked the question until recently. I just assumed that the cocoa, and not even thinking, well, cocoa butter, shea butter, <laughs> why wouldn't the chocolate come from there? But just the idea that, oh, now you're going to buy from us. That is a mindset shift like no other. And, you know, and this is the other narrative that has happened. And this is that drives me crazy, too, that I'm I'm careful of. And I remember sometimes people be like, oh, Lord, here she comes. You know, the whole white savior thing, um, I'm very cautious of that. What I mean is white individuals that may be going to Africa and they start companies based on resources there. So, and so I say that to say, I look at how fair it is to the farmers that are farming the crops that are being used in some of these products, the moringa, the coffee, the chocolate, what is going on? Because I want to see more Black farmers and Black residents in these countries have ownership than someone who is, say, white, I'm sorry, coming and starting companies using Black farmers, et cetera, and then producing products that, again, does not make them an owner or produce the wealth that they deserve. Does that make sense? Oh, 100%. 100% because there's a way to organize the company that the everybody's involved in the profit. Right. There's a profit sharing model that has worked for years. And why not do it except for the fact that you just base it off of the idea, they'll never know <laughs> what's happening outside of this country. They'll never know how much money we'll, we're making. And then now that with technology and with so many Americans visiting these countries now and sharing ideas and information and experiences, now the African people know, oh, wait a minute. You mean you're eating our chocolate and we're not making money off of it? Right. Oh. Let me revisit this, right? Let me yes. revisit this. And, and let us make our own money. And if we partner with someone, let's restructure this. Right. And, you know, the, one of the story, another story that we have in the print issue um, and on our um, podcast as well is with Vava Anguini, who said growing up, being from Kenya, you know, she had family members who grew coffee. But it well, it wasn't on her radar till she went to Toronto and was living with her parents, I mean, her aunt and uncle to finish school. And they were drinking and she saw Kenyan coffee. She started questioning, like, what? This is from my country of Kenya? And then she started, like she said, looking at the net economics, the social justice. And she was saying how her family members were like, oh, it doesn't make much. You know, their story was they you know, it doesn't make much. Oh, you know, she was like, well, why are you still doing it? And so is someone like her who disrupted it, who started that process of, you know what, this is really how it should work. This is how much you probably should look at um, doing your crops for and selling and really having that, those conversations and, and really empowering farmers and communities to say, you know what, hmm, next time somebody comes and say, I want to buy all your coffee beans, 
you know what to say to them and you know what to look for, you know? So, you know, it's, it's really, it's changing that narrative and it's beautiful now because again, you're seeing a lot of black farmers in Africa taking their crops back because now they know how work, what they're worth now, mm-hmm. how they know. And then you further understand the propaganda of separation. Yes. If this group of people connects with this group of people, we're done. <laughs> it is survival at its worst, but it's the true reality. Because if, if, if someone over here who has worked for a chocolate organization connects with the farmers over there and they create their own entity, what do you think is going to happen? What chocolate is going to go on the shelves? Because we'll know how to market it. Right, exactly. <laughs> so, you well, know, not- so we talk about Afrofuturism and part of that is reclaiming, is reclaiming our land, reclaiming our resources, reclaiming our foods. And that is what's happening. 100% seeing ourselves in the future on our own terms, which yes. is a constant theme for me is like, what do I want my future to look like on my terms? There you go. Free of my colonized mind and free of, colonized spaces. What does that look like? And that is what Afrofuturism definitely is. So before we get off of here, you are walking into your 15 year anniversary. 14, 14, 14 year anniversary. Mm -hmm. And how are you celebrating 14 years as a publication? I remember working for a magazine and we lasted two years. (laughs) So I'm like, 14 years? How do you celebrate that? Well, one, being grateful. Yes. You have to be grateful. And looking, you know, I was telling a friend yesterday that I could look around and say, I'm not here. We're not here. We're not doing this. We need this. We need that. And it will drive you crazy trying to keep up with the Joneses, right? But then I have to step back and say, you know what? We're about capturing history that will not go away. We're about amplifying voices that are here to stay. So build this, continue to build at your pace because you're building to last. And so I'm going into 14 years excited knowing that there's still more work to do because there is a certain place that I want to get to and I know we can get there and always challenging myself. But I'm going into the new year amplifying what our work, amplifying the writer's work and just really knowing that, you know what, the best years are ahead of us. And so just being really excited about that. So tell me about your new project, the Global Food and Drink Initiative. It is your non-for-profit? Yes. So what happened, long story short, back in 2020, part of the issue that we have as Black publishers is the lack of support from advertisers. And that came to light in 2020 as well. And so there's a whole nother conversation around that, but you definitely see leaders like Roland Martin, Byron Allen, and others leading the conversation saying, why aren't your big players, your targets, your general motors, and all of that working more with Black publications or media outlets? And then being a smaller publisher such as myself, we get hit even harder. And so 
in the summer of 2020, I was sitting back and like, you know what, we do amazing work, but how do we figure this out on how to really continue doing this? Because it is such a challenge when you have, you're working with an advertising system that's broken, especially in terms of lack of representation of Black people working at these agencies who are de- who are the decision makers over what media outlets to work with. And so therefore they just scoop us or black or scoop black consumers under white media outlets for the most part. And then they're they're done with it. And so doing some research, looking at different models, NPR is a favorite of mine, KQD here in San Francisco is a favorite of mine. I said, you know what? There are publications, newspaper and magazine that are under a nonprofit umbrella. I think that's the route that we need to go. That's going to open up more avenues for us to secure dollars, to continue doing the work we're doing, not just writing the magazine, but also showing up in spaces around diversity, equity, and inclusion. So my work that I do with the Specialty Food Association, being a Sophie judge, you know, talking more on the specialty food stage about producers of color talking in the travel industry about, you know, what Black people travel. Why aren't travel destinations having Black people on their marketing material? So really showing up in these spaces, we we had conversations in the wine industry, and we know that there's a lot going on there in terms of on the professional side, but then you're still on the consumer side, you're still not seeing a lot of advertising and marketing toward Black consumers because brands think that the Black wine consumer doesn't exist. So you know, we're showing up in those spaces, we're doing that work. And so the Global Food and Drink Initiative now as a nonprofit continues to amplify these narratives, one through being in these circles where we can bring to the forefront what some of these concerns and issues and opportunities are. Also why changing the narrative through our publication and through our podcast. So that is beautiful. Thank you. So a lot more work, but it is Yes, it is. But I think it puts you in a place you need to be because you are archiving history. Yes. And you are archiving our stories in a way that haven't been told before. So I do think that that space and and those dollars should be easier for you to get than trying to get them from Target. <laughs> and, you know, Who seems and what- to only want to sell our hair care products and, <laughs> and music. <laughs> You know, we're making strides. It's it's definitely getting better. 2022 gave me hope. And I say, I'm so glad that I hung in here and did not quit because this year is the year that I've been waiting for. And Mm -hmm. so that also makes me excited going into 2023 because of some things that we have in place and partnerships that we have in place based on looking at diversity and equity in this space among advertisers and Black publishers. So, you know, we're just going to keep building from there. Oh, 100%. 100%. And the door is down. <laughs> they keep trying to plug it back up, but the door is down. We're, you yeah, know, we're kicking it down, like you said, and we're going to leave <laughs> and staying down. So I have truly enjoyed this conversation. I have one last question, if you will indulge me. And I'm not going to ask you to pick your favorite chef because it's like asking you to pick your favorite child. <laughs> but... If somebody put a plate and by magic, your favorite food appeared, what is on your plate? Oh, I love that question. You know, <laughs> so I'm going to give you sort of a long answer, but then get to the short of it and to the, to the pure answer. 
Okay, so the short answer is I'm at the heart of me. I'm just a simple girl. I love a good soup, a good sandwich, and a good salad. Okay, I am simple. And sometimes when you go to restaurants, especially if we're on a media trip or something, you know, the food is all foo-foo-ish, right? And sometimes you just hunger and you just want to sink your teeth into some good fried chicken, a good pot of greens, and a good pot of potato salad. So I would say if it was my last meal or someone put a meal in front of me, you know what? These days, seriously, fried chicken has been my comfort food lately. So I want some good fried chicken. I want my mama's potato salad. I want my Aunt Charlotte's yeast rolls. And then I love my cabbage and collard greens. Oh, <laughs> so that's, that's what's in front of me right now. A true Midwestern girl. <laughs> I just like, you know, I enjoy all the foo-foo stuff. But at the end of the day, I like to keep it simple to what I know is just comforting and good. Yes, ma'am. And this conversation has definitely been comforting and good. And I really appreciate <laughs> you being with us. You have an open platform here. Anytime you want to come and share anything. I know that you have a physical magazine coming out. Yes, it is out. We have what we, we print annually once a year. And these are stories that you cannot find on our digital. And there again, there's some amazing stories from around the globe. And so you can find and it's featuring Miss Tabitha Brown on the cover. And so you can go to cuisine noir, N-O-I-R mag.com. You'll see where you can buy the print issue. You can uh, get the physical copy, or if you're out of the country or just prefer to be green, you can order a copy to download it on um, off of issue. Beautiful. And how can people stay in contact with you? Yeah, so definitely, you know, follow us on Instagram, Cuisine Noir Magazine. Follow us on Facebook, Cuisine Noir Magazine. I have to say we will be getting off of Twitter come January 1st. We're not going to deal with that nonsense on there. Amen. So follow us on Facebook and Instagram. And then you can definitely go to CuisineNoirMag.com. We have stories daily. You can sign up for our newsletter so you can know what is going on. We've got some exciting things that we're going to be doing in the new year. So you definitely want to be plugged into that. And then also, too, if you enjoy this work and want to continue to support this work through our nonprofit, the Global Food and Drink Initiative, we are nonprofit 100% 501c3. So your donations are 100% tax deductible to the fullest extent of the law. And so on CuisineNoirMag.com, you can definitely give us a donation and we definitely would appreciate your support. And I will definitely put all of that information in the show notes so that people can get to it. <laughs> like, let's donate to us as well. Let's keep these stories going. Yes. Thank you so much for your time. And thank you so much for all the years of dedication to Black Cuisine. And I appreciate you. And like I said, anytime, you're more than welcome. Thank you, Monica. And I look forward to coming back. <laughs> thank you. Have a wonderful day. You too. Thank you for listening to Black Women Amplified. We hope you enjoyed the show. Be sure to subscribe and log on to blackwomenamplified.com for more information. Keep shining. <laughs>